Nehemiah's primary enemies, those ancient predecessors to the three stooges, Simbalad, Tobiah, and Geshep, have one more time harassed Nehemiah in an attempt to force him to stop construction on this Jerusalem project. I mentioned earlier, verses 1 through 14, here in Nehemiah 6, contain three intimidation techniques. Those evil men used three particular strategies in an attempt to intimidate Nehemiah. Last time we mentioned intimidating technique number one, which was a private letter. A private letter. It is described in verses one through four. Those men had sent a letter to Nehemiah inviting him to meet them at a village in a region called Ono. Ono was located some 20 miles from Nehemiah at Jerusalem. This invitation was for Nehemiah to come to Ono so that each of these interested parties could mutually sit down together in sort of a peace summit conference, sit down around a table and discuss this matter of Nehemiah's rebuilding Jerusalem's wall. On the surface, this sounded almost reasonable and probably something that Nehemiah should consider. But Nehemiah was suspicious. Nehemiah felt that invitation might be a setup. Nehemiah suspected that if he were to go to Ono, Simbalad, Tobiah, and Geshem might have him kidnapped, might hold him hostage. It was also possible that he could be murdered. He had reason to be suspicious, and so he rejected that invitation to go to Ono. It's interesting that private letter was sent to him a total of four times. Each letter essentially the same, inviting him to Ono. And each time Nehemiah responded that he couldn't go to Ono. Nehemiah refused to be intimidated. But those men were still determined to convince him to go to Ono. Since that first technique wasn't convincing, those three men tried a second intimidating technique, and that was in the form of a public letter. The second intimidation technique was in the form of a public letter. Notice verse 5. Then Sambalad sent his servant to me, as before, the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. Notice this phrase, this servant comes to Nehemiah with an open letter in his hand. Notice the progression. The first technique was a private personal letter, and then the second technique was a public letter. A public letter meant an open letter that was available to all people to read. It was similar to a letter to the editor that someone now might send into a major newspaper. It had become obvious to Nehemiah's enemies that he wasn't cooperating and wasn't coming to Ono to this so-called peace conference. So those men tried another technique to put more pressure on Nehemiah to force him to give in and meet them at Ono. So Sanballat and Tobiah gave him this open public letter. The contents of that letter are found in verses 6 and 7. Notice, in it, meaning in that open letter, was written. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebuild. Therefore, according to these rumors, 
You are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. Verse 7, And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Now for those that are unfamiliar where we are, remember Nehemiah has been one of those Jewish exiles uh, in ancient Persia. He was concerned about the condition of the southern Jewish kingdom called Judah. Uh, Much earlier, the Babylonians had invaded Judah and had, uh, and Jerusalem in particular, since Jerusalem was the headquarters of that region, and devastated the entire area. The Jerusalem temple uh, had been completely demolished, and the protective wall around Jerusalem had been torn down. I need to mention that almost a century earlier, in 536 B.C., Zerubbabel and 50,000 Jewish people were given permission to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and reinstate Jewish worship. So that part had been finished. The wall, though, was still decimated and just in rubble. Nehemiah wanted to rebuild that wall so that people could reestablish houses and shops and businesses and different institutions and Jewish culture. And God did something miraculous and convinced the head of the media Persian empire named Artaxerxes, God convinced him to assist Nehemiah in going to Jerusalem and rebuilding that wall. So Artaxerxes supplied manpower and materials and permission and permits and other resources. Nehemiah's enemies now are accusing Nehemiah of an ulterior motive, accusing Nehemiah of wanting to be king of Judah. And in doing that, undermine Artaxerxes, who made the project possible. Um, That wasn't the reason uh, Artaxerxes sent Nehemiah to Judah to become king. And if he were to become king, then he could be a possible threat to Artaxerxes. And so this was the rumor. Now let me paraphrase the contents of this open public letter. It sounded something like this. Nehemiah, it has been rumored among the nations the word is getting out, that you and those people that are assisting you are planning to rebel against the Persian Empire. In fact, the reason this wall is being rebuilt is a part of this rebellion. According to these reports, um, it seems that you have an ambition to become king of Judah. And it is said that you have even appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim and announce that you are the king. This construction project is nothing more than a scam and a scheme to rebel against Artaxerxes, the king in Persia. And this problem, this situation, is going to be brought to the king's attention. He's going to hear about this. So, Nehemiah, we need to meet. This open letter was intended for everyone to hear read. In a strict technical sense, that's called libel. Libel. Libel is defined as a written statement or graphic representation, especially in published form, that damages a person's reputation. Libel is personal defamation made in print, and slander is personal defamation 
made in speech. That's the difference. Libel is personal defamation made in print, uh, some publication, somehow. And slander is personal defamation made in someone's speech. Example, if I said that someone was ugly and his mother dressed him funny, that would be a form of slander. If I circulated around an email that said that, then that would be considered libel. Nehemiah had been libeled in the form of this open letter because these accusations made against him, which were fraudulent, were in print. One of the problems that this libelous public letter created was that if the Persian authorities heard about this false report, then Nehemiah would have some serious explaining to do to Artaxerxes, or else Artaxerxes could have put an immediate end stoppage to this project. Notice two distinct phrases in verse 6. The first phrase is, it is reported among the nations. And then the second phrase is, according to these rumors. Both phrases are describing gossip. That public letter didn't contain documented factual information. These were just fraudulent rumors that people were passing around. That open letter was just full of gossip, not unlike the secular media today. In Nehemiah's case, the accusations made against him were totally false. He and his construction crews weren't scheming to rebel against the Persian Empire. He didn't have more political ambitions. At that moment, he was acting as governor of that region because he was asked to do so, but Nehemiah had no desire to become king. That meant the straight statements made in that letter that were now public were just lies. According to the dictionary, the actual word gossip means to indulge in idle talk and or rumors about someone else. Understand that something doesn't have to be a lie in order for it to constitute gossip. Some people are under the impression that if something is factual, then we can just pass it on indiscriminately and it doesn't matter who hears it. That's not so. Sharing something that is true, that is though to remain confidential, constitutes gossip. And don't forget, someone's gossip is compounded if the information that is passed on is false, as it was in Nehemiah's case. This was a public letter, an open letter, and it is probable that thousands of people heard that letter read. Those people heard that Nehemiah was scheming to create an insurrection against the media Persian Empire. According to that bogus letter, that was one of the reasons... One of the primary reasons Nehemiah was rebuilding this wall and gates so he could restore Jerusalem, so he could arm the people, and so he could then rebel against Artaxerxes. Question, how did Nehemiah react to this rumorous, gossiping, libelous, intimidating public letter? He did three things. Don't miss them. First, Nehemiah denied their accusations. Nehemiah denied their accusations in that open letter. Nehemiah dogmatically and categorically denied those accusations. Notice verse 8. Then I sent to him, meaning Nehemiah sent a return message in response 
to that open letter, he sent a message to Geshep. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. Translated as Nehemiah said in the form of this response, Geshep, none of this that you have said in this open letter, none of this is true. You have just made all this stuff up. That letter was totally fictitious. It contained no factual content at all. Nehemiah categorically denied those allegations made against him. Nehemiah and his people were not planning to rebel. That was a complete fabrication. Nehemiah wasn't planning to become king. He had not appointed prophets to announce him as king in Judah. Those were all untrue statements, and he told those men that. I don't think that Nehemiah was being defensive per se. He was just building a reasonable warranted, accurate defense for himself. He was defending his reputation, and that is a legitimate thing. Some Christians feel that we should never defend ourselves for any reason. I don't agree. If we have been wronged, slandered, and or libeled, and misrepresented as Nehemiah was, unless it's something insignificant, and we can let love cover it, and ignore it and move on. And if we can do that, then we should do that. And we should do that probably more often than we do. We should do that, but if we just cannot, our conscience won't permit that, um, then we have a legitimate right to set the record straight and defend ourselves. First Peter 3.16, having a good conscience that when, notice when, not if, When they defame you, defamation includes libel and slander. When they defame you as evildoers, understand someone at some point in time is going to defame us. It is inevitable. It has happened to me countless times. And according to Simon Peter's statement, that defamation will label us as an evildoer. We aren't because it's a false accusation, but that is the label we will have after this person does that. Defamation is a common human experience. It's interesting that failures dislike successes. Those that are failures are envious, often envious of those that succeed. And as an extension of that enviness, those that are failures sometimes bring false accusations, libeling, slandering, against someone that is successful. If we think about it, the most maligned and wrongly accused person in human history was Jesus himself. And not unlike Nehemiah, Jesus was also accused of promoting sedition and wanting to organize an insurrection against the Roman government. And those charges were totally false. If we are determined to succeed at something, or if we want to venture out and do something that most others would never even attempt to do, then we are actually putting ourselves at risk for attracting fraudulent accusations. We're risking being defamed. Remember this open letter about Nehemiah was not an accurate report of evil. This open letter was an evil report that was full of lies. 
First Peter 3, 16, one more time. Having a good conscience, meaning we are to have a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile, revile means to defame, to slander and libel, falsely accuse, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Meaning sometimes we are to defend ourselves against false accusations so that those that speak evil about us might be ashamed of themselves for defaming us. It is, it, it is a legitimate right that we have to defend ourselves against false accusations. Again, if it is something insignificant, we should just permit love to cover it and move on. If we're being lied about, and that is becoming public and mis- misrepresented, and, and it is something significant that might infringe on our testimonies as a Christian, then we should speak out and insist, no, that isn't true. I didn't say that. I didn't do that. And what you're accusing me of didn't happen. I do believe we have a right in some cases to defend ourselves against slander and libel, just as Nehemiah did. He categorically denied those accusations. I need to add a caution, though, and mention there is a limit to defending ourselves. It's possible to focus so much on defending ourselves that we neglect to do what we have been assigned to do. The famous preacher Henry Ward Beecher said, quote, Life would be a virtual flea hunt a flea hunt if a man was required to run down every innuendo and insinuation about him and the misrepresentations that are uttered against him. President Abraham Lincoln said, if I were to try to read, much less answer, all the attacks that are made against me, then this shop would close for business. Defending ourselves can be a serious distraction if we aren't careful. And I'm certain these three men were hoping that this open public letter would be a distraction for Nehemiah. Fortunately, it wasn't, though, so the construction continued. There was a second thing Nehemiah did to counteract that public letter. Notice, Nehemiah interpreted those accusations to those around him. Nehemiah interpreted those accusations to those around him. Verse 9, For they all were trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Nehemiah said to his associates and construction crews and people that were part of that massive project, he said to them, Do you understand the reason these men are making up these false accusations against us? Do you understand the basic motivation behind this unfairness and this slander and libel? Nehemiah was interpreting those false accusations to his people and through relating those accusations to those that were assisting Nehemiah, made them realize that what their enemies wanted to do was to frighten them through intimidation so that they would stop this project. Sambalat and Tobiah had tried to inject fear into the situation. This second intimidation technique was designed to actually scare them into stopping construction. It's interesting that fear-mongering is still a thing. 
The highest paid U.S. government bureaucrat is a fear monger. His name is Dr. Anthony Fauci. The man has managed to terrify a nation, and some people are still terrified. Female collegiate swimmers are afraid to speak out about competing against transgender biological males. These women are afraid of being harassed from peers and afraid of consequences from the NCAA. People are afraid of being shunned and ignored and rejected and assaulted and unemployed and canceled. Understand Satan operates according to fear. God operates according to faith. First Timothy, pardon me, Second Timothy, one in verse seven reads, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. God has told us not to be afraid more than 100 times in Scripture. And we are not to be afraid because God himself is in control. How often, though, have we heard this statement from someone, but if I don't do that, I'm afraid this could happen. If I, if I do this, I'm afraid that could happen. It is true we sometimes permit fear to intimidate us into doing something we shouldn't do or not do something that we should do. The prolific author Charles Swindoll mentions reading about a woman who went to lunch with 11 other men, women, pardon me, 11 other women, that were taking a French course together, of all things, uh, since their children were all in school. So there are a dozen of them. One rather bold type uh, asked the rest of the group, I'm curious uh, just how many of us have been faithful throughout our entire marriage. I'm just curious, ladies. Just one woman raised her hand indicating that she had been faithful to her mate throughout her marriage. One woman out of a dozen. That evening, one of the women related that incident to her husband. And she admitted to him she was not the one woman who raised her hand. And her husband was shocked. And she quickly assured him, but honey, no, I have been faithful to you. I promise, I promise, I have never cheated. This husband responded, then why didn't you raise your hand? She paused and then said, because I was ashamed. Dr. Swindoll concluded, that's like being ashamed of good health during an epidemic or being ashamed of escaping unscathed from an earthquake. But apparently when it comes to having an affair, peer pressure shifts the blame away from the guilty and imposes it on the innocent. This secularized culture uses fear to intimidate and pressure us into things that are so inappropriate. The third thing that Nehemiah did was to fight against this public letter was Nehemiah asked God to strengthen him against those false accusations. He asked God to strengthen him against those false accusations. Verse 9, Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. Nehemiah then did what he had done so often before. He went to God and asked him to strengthen him and help him in this moment of need. 
I'm curious, have we noticed, those of us who have been through most of this series, have we noticed that Nehemiah was addicted to prayer? He was a prayer addict, as we all should be. And I am becoming more and more aware of that. It seems to me that we need God's strength now more than ever. From the complicated global chaos to our own personal problems. There's all this craziness around us and people, it's getting worse. Our government has lost its mind. We spend billions and billions to protect a corrupt European nation's border against foreign intrusion and we refuse to protect our own southern border against an invasion of illegal immigrants. How smart are we? We shut down a pipeline that would bring oil to our refineries from our neighbor nation to the north, Canada, and instead we approve a pipeline that brings oil from Russia to Germany and in doing so enriching Russia. We have the capacity to be the top oil-producing nation on earth, and instead we are begging to be able to purchase oil from our enemies, such as Iran. We've lost our minds. We now have a female nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court, who on the surface seems nice enough. She's respectful and polite, but she said she cannot define what a woman is because she's not a biologist. It's interesting. She does have two degrees from Harvard University, one from Harvard Law School where she graduated cum laude. Cum laude means graduating with distinction. That much formal education at an elite Ivy League institution should enable someone to define their own gender, one would think, unless that someone doesn't want to reveal their woke ideology which is exactly what is happening. Defining a woman isn't that difficult. Ignoring the biological definition, I would suggest a biblical definition. Genesis 1, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, him. Male and female. Male and female. He created them. An irreducible minimum definition of a woman is this. Don't miss this. A woman is someone who is not a man. That was worth the price of admission right there. A woman is someone who is not a man. Because there's no such thing as gender neutrality and non-binary. Those are erroneous social constructs. There is male, there is female. There is man and there is woman. And don't tell me she doesn't know the difference. She's hiding. Someone said this nation resembles an insane asylum and the inmates are in charge. Nehemiah prayed that God would give him strength to endure this threat. And we need to also pray that God would give us strength to endure the mess we're in. These are the three things that Nehemiah did to react to those false libelous charges that were brought against him. There was a man that had a significant ministry in a small English village long ago. 
People were coming from miles around to hear him teach the Bible. Just in his mid-twenties, he had a voracious appetite for not only teaching the scriptures, but practicing them as well. He was making a significant impact in that village and the surrounding areas. That was until some charges were made. A young woman came forward and claimed that he had tried to force himself on her sexually. That slanderous accusation spread like wildfire until he was humiliated. The sentiments of the village people were with that young woman. His reputation was in shambles. He had been slandered. He had been falsely accused. It was all a lie. It never happened. This aspiring preacher struggled with this young woman who had betrayed him. He was someone he, she was someone he had legitimately tried to help, but she had turned on him and in the, was in the process of ruining the calling on his life. For some time, he thought he could never recover from those fraudulent charges, but he refused to permit bitterness to take root in his heart. God enabled him to conquer that bitterness, and he, and he refused to let that slander stop him in his desire to be used of God. Most evangelicals, most people in this room probably, have either heard of or actually do own a copy of his classic best-selling devotional book entitled, My Utmost, for his highest. His name was Oswald Chambers. Nehemiah had been handed a private letter. And then there was this open public letter full of ludicrous accusations, but none of that stopped Nehemiah. So those evil men tried one more technique. A third technique. The third intimidation technique was a perverted prophecy. A perverted prophecy. Nehemiah's enemies are persistent. These men were persistent in their evil planning. This time, that diabolical trio hired a man on the inside to propose a solution to Nehemiah in order to entrap him. That insider, insider was named Shemaiah. Shemaiah. We don't know much about Shemaiah, except that he claimed to be a prophet. It would seem that part of his strategy was to purposely lock himself in his house, and then send word for Nehemiah to come and visit him. Once Nehemiah got there, he would talk to him about a situation he hoped might arouse Nehemiah's curiosity. So Nehemiah went to see him. And when Nehemiah arrived at his house, this supposed prophet, Shemaiah, gave him this message. And that message was direct and to the point. His message is found in verse 10. Notice, Afterward, I, Nehemiah, came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, the son of Mahathabel, who was a secret informer. A secret informer. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. So Shemaiah said to Nehemiah, after Nehemiah arrived at his house, he said, My sources are telling me that Sembalat, Tobiah, and Geshem are scheming to come in the middle of the night and apprehend you. And if they find you, Nehemiah, then you're a dead man. I have a solution. 
The solution is that you and I go into the Jerusalem temple and then shut the doors behind us for protection. No one is going to suspect finding us in the temple. We can go there and hide from these men and then pray and discuss what we should do. That was sort of a pious excuse on the part of Shemaiah to convince Nehemiah to do something he shouldn't do. So that was the, quote, prophetic message he had for Nehemiah. His enemies would find him, according to this, and find him in the darkness of the night, kidnap him, and then have him executed. So Shemaiah recommended that he and Nehemiah hide together in the Jerusalem temple. No one would suspect that. The problem was there were two basic flaws in that prophecy. Two flaws. One, it wouldn't be logical for God to ask Nehemiah to leave this job before the construction project was finished. It wouldn't be logical for God to ask Nehemiah to leave this job site before the construction project was finished. Remember that at this moment in time, the reconstructed wall was up and completed. And all that was left to do was to insert the doors into the gates. The project was that close to being finished. I want us to consider what has transpired. In a miraculous manner, God made it possible for Nehemiah to journey some 800 miles to, uh, to Jerusalem from Persia. He had managed to get near unanimous support from the Jerusalem residents to provide the labor needed to construct that wall around Jerusalem. God had protected Nehemiah and his crews from his enemies time after time after time during the actual building processes, and now the project was almost finished. Nehemiah was the general contractor on this job, and he had been since the beginning, and it didn't make sense for him to abandon this unfinished project and hide out for an undetermined period of time. It was theoretically prop possible he could be hiding from his enemies for a month or more. God would not want him to leave that job site just before it was finished. He would want him to complete what he had started. And I still believe God wants people that start something, something that is meaningful, something that matters, something that has value, God wants some people that start something of that nature to finish that something, unless it was something we should never have started to begin with. People that start and then stop, I've seen them so often, people start and then stop, start and then stop, start and then stop, people never finish, those are people God cannot use. Most anyone can start something. It sometimes requires a special effort, though, to finish. Nehemiah started that project, and Nehemiah was determined to finish that project. God brought him there to start that project and then see it through uninterrupted until the end. The second flaw in that prophecy is this. It wouldn't be logical for God to ask Nehemiah to violate his law. It wouldn't be logical. It would be absurd, actually, for God to ask Nehemiah to violate his law. Notice verse 11. And I, Nehemiah, said, should such a man as I flee? Meaning, should I be running from this problem? And who is there, such as I, who would go into the temple to save his life? 
That means as a non-priest, Nehemiah didn't have legitimate access to the temple. So he said, notice, verse 11, I will not go in. Meaning, I will not go in and hide in the temple. Nehemiah was not a priest. He was just a Jewish layman. If he were to enter into the, to the temple, and especially the holiest part of that temple, and shut him up, himself up in there, that would be to desecrate the house of God and subject him to serious divine punishment. According to Numbers 18, God said that ordinary people, such as Nehemiah, would die if they were to go into the holiest part of the temple. So Nehemiah refused to do what Shemaiah had suggested he do. He said in no uncertain terms, in verse 11, I will not go in. That message couldn't be a legitimate prophecy because God would never violate what he had said in Scripture. God never violates his word. God had earlier said that people were not to enter areas in the temple that were designated for priests, and he wasn't going to make an exception in Nehemiah's case. For some reason, some people are always hoping to find a loophole or an exception or an out to what God has said. And people, that doesn't exist. For instance, Scripture specifically prohibits the marriage of a Christian to a non-Christian. In 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14, that's called an unequal yoke. That is a, an agricultural analogy no farmer intending to plow a field would harness together or yoke together an ox and a donkey. He might harness together, yoke together two oxen or two donkeys, but he wouldn't harness together or yoke together an ox and a donkey because that is an unworkable combination. That is an unequal yoke. Marriage is a form of a yoke. Marriage is two people committing themselves to one another as partners for life. Marriage is intended to be permanent. And a Christian and a non-Christian in marriage constitutes an unequal yoke. The common denominator, Jesus Christ, is absent from one of the parties. That's an unequal yoke and an unworkable spiritual combination. But some people consider themselves as an exception to that rule. Listen to this prayer from a professing Christian woman. And this is an actual prayer. Dear God, I can hardly believe that this is my wedding day. I guess that I feel a little guilty when I try to pray about all this, since Billy still isn't a Christian. But, oh, Father, I love him so much. What else can I do? I couldn't just give him up. Oh God, please save him some way, somehow. You know how much I have prayed for him and how we have discussed the gospel together. I've tried not to come on too religious. I know, but that's because I don't want to scare him off. But he isn't antagonistic, and so I don't understand why he hasn't responded yet. Oh, if only he were a Christian. Dear Father in heaven, please bless our marriage. I don't want to be disobedient, but I do love him so much. And I want so much to be his wife. So please be with us. And please don't spoil our wedding day. If that sanctimonious prayer is stripped of his pious verbiage, 
then it is actually saying something that sounds more like this. Dear Father, I don't want to be disobedient, but I must have what I want at all cost. Because I love what you do not love, and I want what you do not want. So please be a good God and deny yourself and move off your throne for a minute and let me take over. If you don't like what I'm doing, then all I ask is that you bite your tongue and say or do nothing that would spoil my plans. But please let me enjoy myself. God has said what he said in his word. God has meant what he said in his word. And none of us are an exception to what he has said. Not even Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah is going to push back on that idea of hiding out in the temple. Those basic flaws were the reasons Shemaiah's prophetical message was so perverted. It would be illogical for God to ask Nehemiah to stop his participation on this job before this project was finished. And it wasn't sensible for God to expect Nehemiah to violate Scripture either. Notice verse 12. Then I, Nehemiah, perceived that God had not sent him at all. <laughs> Nehemiah said, I perceived, I got the idea that, no, he's not from God. Nehemiah discerned Shemaiah's message was not from God. But that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalad had hired him. Shemaiah was a prophet for hire. Shemaiah was a fraudulent false prophet that was bought off by Nehemiah's enemies in order to deceive him. Nehemiah detected that scam and he rejected that prophecy. Verse 13, for this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. Nehemiah's enemies had hired Shemaiah to fabricate this prophecy in order to deceive Nehemiah into going into the Jerusalem temple into an area where he was prohibited from being. That would be an offense toward God if he were to do that. At some point, he, he, he would, couldn't hide forever. And so at some point, that offense would be discovered and he would be made public and that would undermine his credibility as a spiritual leader in Judah and the project would stop. So Nehemiah's enemies tried one more time to intimidate him and getting him to react to them in fear. I read an article, a recent article interviewing the pastor of a, a mega congregation and he was asked this question, what is the biggest mistake you have ever made in hiring staff? What is the biggest mistake? He answered, every mistake of mine has been because I felt I had a gun to my head and I was afraid. I was being forced by circumstances uh, or there was this seeming mandate from the congregation or there was pressure from someone who desperately wanted this position. Each time I made a quick staff decision in terms of hiring someone, it was a big mistake. I might add our latest staff addition is Chris Gray, and uh, that wasn't a mistake. <laughs> that's, that's funny. <laughs> Reacting in fear gets people in trouble. 
That's the reason instead of reacting in fear, we should act in faith. Nehemiah stood firm. Nehemiah continued to act in faith, believing that God wanted him to finish this job. God would enable him to finish this project. He and his men went back to the job site. He didn't give in to this intimidation. He didn't give in to the private letter. He didn't give in to the public letter. And then he didn't give in to this perverted prophecy. He continued the project God had called him to do. Verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Alu, in 52 days, this construction project, this massive wall, was completed in a record breaking 52 days because Nehemiah remained unintimidated. Verse 16, and it happened. When all our enemies, meaning specifically Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, when all our enemies heard of it, meaning heard about the wall being completed, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. That is an exciting statement, because this wall was now totally complete. Life could be reestablished in Judah as before. And Nehemiah's enemies and those pagan nations around Jerusalem were bummed about that. Bummed that this project was now finished and complete. Bummed about what was happening in Judah. Those antagonists and those foreign nations were depressed because it was apparent to them that it was Nehemiah's God that had made that possible and they understood there was nothing they could do about it. Those three intimidation techniques were not able to determine, to deter Nehemiah from finishing what God intended for him to do. He refused to be intimidated. As a high schooler, there was another student in our church that was two grades ahead of me. His name was Carl Calcara. He and his parents were part of our, our congregation. Um, my father pastored that church. He was a tremendous athlete and a very likable person. One night, though, he caved into fear pressure. He permitted himself to be intimidated into doing something he shouldn't have done. It was late spring, 1966, and Carl Calcara was a member of the graduating class from Oak Park High School in the northern part of Kansas City. It's interesting that at that time, I don't know now, at that time, though, the legal age for purchasing alcohol in Missouri was 21. Now, if you don't know anything about Kansas City, the Missouri River divides Kansas City greater area into Missouri side and Kansas side. And uh, so there's two parts. If somebody says, I'm from Kansas City, I go, which side? What, Missouri, Kansas, what, you know. And uh, because it's, they're, they're both there. Um, the legal age for purchasing alcohol was 21 in Missouri. But in Kansas, the age was just 18. For those schools on the Missouri side, after graduation, a lot of graduating seniors that had either turned 18 or else had counterfeit IDs would then drive across the state line, purchase alcohol, purchase alcohol to consume. From all we knew up to that point, Carl didn't drink, from all that we knew. 
But he got into a car with four of his friends, all of them graduating seniors. Um, This is right after graduation, the ceremony, minutes after. The five of them drove to Kansas. Someone bought beer and whatever other alcohol was available to them. And together, the five of them started to drink in celebration of that graduation. It was just three hours after Carl Calcara had walked across the stage and received his high school diploma that he got into this car, he and his friends. The driver of that vehicle was thoroughly intoxicated and drove that car more than 90 miles per hour down one of the interstates. In doing that, he missed an exit, went off an embankment, and plunged down a ravine. Four of those graduates died at the scene, including Carl Calcara. I still remember my father saying it was the most difficult funeral service he had ever conducted. The driver suffered serious injuries, was hospitalized for some time, but he managed to survive. Although since that time, he has been in and out of psychiatric institutions his entire adult life. And someone uh, that I knew after that, someone else in that graduating class, told me that this driver would never, ever be right. Carl Calcara caved into the classic logic that intimidationists use. Be there or be square, man. Is there something wrong with you? What do you mean you don't want to party? Carl caved into intimidation and fear, something Nehemiah refused to do. And I hope and I pray something that you will refuse to do. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you again for this man and his determination to do what you called him to do. He refused to be intimidated. He refused to permit fear to um, keep him from that project. We have all faced intimidation and will, I'm certain, from this day on, at some point. People will use fear to intimidate us or, or something else, who knows. But I pray God will stay strong, stay strong to you and what you have called us to do and be the man or the woman that you want us to be. So I just pray you'll continue to use these messages. We don't have long to go in this book and we'll be finished, but... I do pray that they're making a difference in our thinking and ultimately in our actions. And I thank you and I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.